All right, welcome to episode 64 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Helen DeCruz. Uh, she's a professor of philosophy um, and Danforth Chair in the Humanities at St. Louis University in Missouri. Her latest book is The Challenge of Evolution to Religion, co-authored with Jonathan Schmidt. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. And so before we begin, I wanted to read a, a passage from Helen's recent article on AL Magazine. And so in the article, Helen talks about the necessity of emotions, and in particular, the necessity of awe in scientific exploration. So she writes, in their classic account of awe, the, psychi the psychologist Datcher Kelp, I think it's Kelpner, and Jonathan Haidt characterize awe as a spiritual, moral, and aesthetic emotion. In their view, all clear cases of all have the following two components, an experience of vastness and a need for cognitive accommodation of this vastness. The need for, the for a cognitive accommodation makes you aware that there is a lot that you don't know. You feel small, insignificant, and part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. So then, Helen, the question to begin is going to be, why do you believe that all is a necessary component of scientific exploration? And how do you feel like it fosters it? And how does it foster scientific understanding in general? I think in general that uh, the role of emotions in anything we do is something that we can't really overstate. So we've already known for a while that emotions are really important in uh, people's actions and decision making. Uh, and basically, so you have this uh, Darwinian framework. Uh, so Darwin wrote this book on uh, emotions, I think in 1872, where he said that emotions are the sorts of things that animals uh, have that help them to do things. So for example, you wouldn't run away from a predator unless you were afraid, right? I mean, you can think sort of rationally and coolly like this predator is going to probably eat me if I don't run away now. But the fear gives you that immediate impulse to keep going and to go quickly uh, that you would otherwise have. And think about, so another emotion is, for example, love. So you could feel love for, so emotions are always directed in, at some things, well, specific or not, but they're always identified. Uh, directed at something. So suppose you feel love for your offspring and that motivates you to take care of them, even if they're a little horrible, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if the, even if it's difficult, even if the going gets tough, mm -hmm. it st still gives you that motivation and that drive. And I think similarly, a lot of science, uh, the motivation for it is that we genuinely are in awe or have a sense of wonder for, um, the world around us like we just are stunned by you know what the world is and, and we want to know more and we realize that there's lots we don't know so you get this sort of sense of you know a kind of sense of dissatisfaction like there's a lot i don't know and i want to know more about it and that motivates you to actually learn more about it so i think that um people have emphasized a lot the usefulness of science. And obviously, you know, science is super useful. Like if anybody's going to get us out of this pandemic, it's going to be the scientists. They're going to bail us out, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but I also know like the, the few people I know who work in this domain, like I know this virologist uh, at Oxford University, and he says like, so why do you study viruses? So I asked him one day, why do you study viruses? His name, by the way, is Robert Gilbert at Modlin College. And he said, viruses are the most beautiful thing that I have ever seen. Like, I can look through this, you know, I can look at the structure and marvel at how beautiful a virus is, at how, you know, wondrously it's sort of, it's structure, I don't know, I don't know much about viruses, and mm -hmm. the ingenuity, like, and that actually motivates him to study viruses. Um, so I think just in terms of something that keeps us going and that motivates us to do this stuff in the first place, you need to have these emotions of awe and wonder uh, to even get started. Mm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And in terms of, it's like, um, you know, we often talk about obviously system two and rational thinking, but the interesting thing is that, um, so it was something that Massimo Piliucci, who's a Stoic philosopher said to us, mm-hmm. which um, really, I think hit home, I think for both of us, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I kind of came from the impression of the understanding that it's sort of reason that always needs to be at the forefront. And he corrected me on our show. He said, well, I mean, in my understanding, it's actually that there needs to be a harmony between emotions and reason, that it's not as though reason should always be at the forefront, but sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, kind of emotion. Well, there has to be a way for them to kind of live. Um, there has to be a reconciliation between the two. They have to live with one another. And so sometimes emotional reasoning is not necessarily a bad thing, right? So sometimes when, you know, we're in a sort of in the prairie and, you know, there's a sense of danger and our emotions are saying that, hey, you should get the hell out of here. And we're thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I'm anxious. Therefore, I should really get the hell out of here. So sometimes our emotions are guiding us to like wonderful conclusions and obviously wonderful actions, life-saving actions. And so when sometimes what happens in my kind of opinion is that when it comes to scientific or lack of scientific thinking, is just a sort of closeness in people's minds where there is no sense of awe and there is no sense of wonder. So it's not as though the reasoning is, oh, well, I feel that this is something incredible or powerful and therefore I should learn more about it. But the understanding is like, yeah, who cares? I already know everything there is to know. And so do you feel like that that's a lot of what makes it so difficult for us to consume scientific information? Definitely. So I think Heschel, uh, so uh, Hashel, whom I mentioned in the article that you just quoted from, so he was a Jewish philosopher and he was very interested in the relationship between science and religion. And he said the problem with modernity, with modern man, is that they think they got it all figured out. Mm-hmm. So he thought the big problem for for science, for religion, is not science per se. Science and religion he didn't see a conflict between them. The big problem is for both that you get a sense of complacency. So he thought that was the big problem that people have this sense, like, look what we can all do. We figured it all out. We're so powerful. And uh, that is a big problem, not only for science communication, um, but also for other things like, for example, how are we managing the planet? Like if you think you've got it all figured out, uh, you know, there's sort of little little pricks into that that illusion. Like when you hear about fire tornadoes and murder hornets, and you know, then you realize maybe we're not as powerful after all. If there can be fire tornadoes and power outages, and you know, it sort of feels a right. bit apocalyptic, right? Um, but but Heschel thought it was very important, and he thought religion, in fact, helps people to do that. That it's very important to keep or to cultivate a sense of awe and wonder uh, so that you don't become complacent and that you realize that there is a lot out there that you just don't know yet. And then going back to uh, Darwin's view of emotions, right? They, they make us, they help us want to do things. So cultivating that sense of awe, that sense of wonder, a sense of, you know, uh, that there's this vastness before me uh, allows one to, want to innovate, wants to wonder what's, what else, what's going on here? What else is there? Uh, yeah. What is it that we still do not know? And it kind of drives you forward. It moves you forward. Whereas complacency uh, keeps you stuck in your own old ways. You reject the new. And uh, going back to an example of something from modernity, right? Um, some people still believe that uh, gas and coal is the be all end all in terms of uh, an abundant uh, source of energy that we could use as fuel, right? Mm-hmm. But there, there are others, uh, more uh, creative folk, uh, and I'm sure there are other ways that we have not even discovered yet, but we think that uh, solar power is uh, one way or mm-hmm. electrically run vehicles like with Tesla, for instance, right? And uh, they think that there's potential in that. And um what we've seen, especially with, a, let's say, a company like Tesla, is they've actually found a way to uh, sell electric vehicles to the public. Once upon a time, people thought, no, that, that's not going to work, or there are mm-hmm. so many problems with it. But he just keeps kind of upgrading what he does with these vehicles and innovates yeah. and, and sees um, newer solutions to, to older challenges. And that's just like one example of using awe to, to innovate, to move forward. Yeah, if I could just move into that. So I, 
I like the idea. Like I was in my first fully automated driving vehicle of Tesla, like a few months ago when I took like many months ago, it seems, you know, uh, before the pandemic, uh, I was in this self-driving vehicle and uh, of an Uber driver. And I thought, wow, this is, this is kind of cool. Um, but at the same time, I'm sort of thinking, yes, so, you know, self-driving uh, completely solar powered vehicles or vehicles with, uh, you know, uh, renewable fuels uh, are great. But at the same time, you could think even more boldly and wonder, like, you know, it was a conscious decision in the 1950s in the US to make the community's car dependent, right? Mm. So uh, to make highways, and those highways, of course, cost a lot of money to maintain, but people just, you know, we take that as a given and we take the individual car as a given. And recently I've even heard people say, oh, it's a good thing that, you know, or you had other people saying, no wonder people in New York are having such high level of virus because look at them taking public transportation. Uh, but at the same time, like I'm a European, so um, I, you know, I'm very comfortable taking public transportation and it's just a different way of doing things, right? So maybe the future is not like self-driving solar powered vehicles, but, you know, trains and that sort of thing, right? So you could, you could think for wise directions and it has ramifications for what you do. So obviously if you take public transportation, there is a kind of way in which you engage with people that is very different from cars. Like, you know, so you have to stand if you see somebody with a uh, disability or elderly coming in and there's no seats, then it's good practice to stand up and offer your seat. And I often, you know, I miss that living in the US, that sort of kind of community uh, that's being built. And so one way in which people think about such futures is fiction. So that's another another thing I, I like uh, doing and that I've, I've gotten into recently. Uh, mm. So you've got so-called solar punk. Um, solar punk is basically, so you know steampunk, right? Where you mm -hmm. have, or diesel punk, where the- Or cyberpunk. Cyberpunk. Well, solar punk is, you know, a sort of imagining hopeful futures with uh, solar energy and, and, and such things. Mm. Wait, what is that? Oh, what's <laughs> the punks? Yeah, what is that? Oh, so it's like an imagined uh, future where everything is is uh, so okay. So imagine uh, like solar punk, let's mm -hmm. say. So it would be like a future where everything is run by solar energy, mm -hmm. and it would be an entirely different paradigm of of technology. Mm -hmm. And um, that's that's a beautiful imagined future, and it would be interesting if actually we went down that path. It it actually seems like a possible. Um, path for us actually mm -hmm. given yeah. what we see now which is yeah it's interesting oh and are these are like fictional stories about like these hypothetical futures yeah so the idea is that you um you try to imagine so you you probably know like dystopia such as the hunger right. games and like and if you think about it the path that brings us from here to the hunger games is a very difficult unlikely path like it might be possible that, you know, people will live in squalor and you'll have a few super rich and, you know, it certainly seems like it's inevitable that super rich will continue no matter what. I mean, see how they enrich themselves now with the pandemic uh, and everybody else gets poorer and poorer. So it's certainly possible. And then they start playing each other for sport and killing each other off or being killed by the elements. So it's certainly not impossible. But you could likewise sort of think about paths to, you know, better futures. And in a sense, that is an interesting exercise as well, because uh, it kind of helps you to break free from the sort of ideas of this is inevitable, like we're going on this path or this sort of features of society are inevitable, because maybe they aren't. If you can imagine it in a fiction, then maybe they aren't inevitable. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, uh, so for example, this is a little deviating for probably what we had planned, but this is oh, interesting. Oh, that's cool. I'm this fine. great. Yeah. So, uh, so Elon Musk, for instance, right? He went on Joe Rogan's podcast. I forget how many months ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And uh, Joe asks him about his uh, upcoming invention. He's coming out with something called Neuralink. Uh, have, mm -hmm. you, have you heard of this? No, could you explain? Okay, so Neuralink is it's it's this chip that would go into so right now they're testing it on uh people with uh, disabilities uh mm -hmm. like uh, parkinson's or, or als something like that, any brain related disease 
Um, and so this chip would go into their brain and let's say somebody is uh, paralyzed, right? They would be able to walk again. Uh, if another brain, or if somebody has, uh, what is it? Alzheimer's. That's funny that I couldn't <laughs> pick that up. <laughs> but if somebody has Alzheimer's, for instance, as well, uh, it would it would give some kind of electrical charge to the person's uh, hippocampus and allow for them to um, be able to remember things and, and not have some of the same issues you would with Alzheimer's. Oh, um, well, so far it seems like the tests are going swimmingly, but okay, no, I hear you. But it's but it's not you know it's not available to the public, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the potential uses of it, he says, uh, that he sees coming in within five to ten years. Uh, it could be longer, but that's an interesting, it's not that long. Uh, he believes that uh, people will be able to uh, hear each other's thoughts or send thoughts to each other mm -hmm. or read each other. Yeah, really. That's spooky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, also, one thing I forgot to mention, which will be one of the immediate uses of this thing, not the five to 10 year uh, aspect of it, is it would, so he says it would solve the bandwidth problem that we have with so long story short, uh, what we would be able to do is uh, get information from the internet, let's say, instantly to our brain, or uh, get a song instantly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it sounds nuts, but also kind of cool. No, definitely cool. Yeah. It's 100%. This is so cool. Like, uh, I yeah. just recently co-edited a, a book called Philosophy Through Fiction Stories with mm -hmm. Johannes Smetten and Eric Schwitzgable and it's coming out with Bloomsbury. And we mm -hmm. actually have a story in there that Ken Liu, uh, who's um, a fiction writer, so he's known from Paper Menagerie, that's basically his best known collection of short fiction, where he actually talks about, so he has this, uh, uh, he explores this idea that you could instantly call something up and it's a dystopian story like it's it's grim like at the end you think oh my god i hope this this technology doesn't doesn't come to being so that's all i can say about it because uh, fiction writers are a bit nervous about that no, <laughs> coming out uh before but so when it comes out i invite you to read the story uh because it's interesting to see like the nice thing with the story is that you can get unexpected consequences out of so you can sort of think of implications that aren't immediately obvious to you if you were to just like think oh what could we do with this well it's designed for that so we can do that but if you can think of, if you want to think about unexpected consequences i think for that stories are great oh yeah absolutely i can imagine a scenario so let's say uh i have a perfect example of that let's say somebody comes out with a product uh, in the near future it's like nanites that may go into your body, regulate, mm -hmm. um, regulate. Uh, for instance, you'd never get sick again. That's what the product says. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, or it'll enhance your cognitive abilities and other things that I can't really sum up right now. But say we had that. I can imagine a possible dystopian uh, scenario where maybe somebody hacks the the, <laughs> the little machines in somebody's body. For instance, and maybe like does something to influence them in certain ways. Yeah. Right. And I could, you know, so I get, yeah, I could see it. it could go really bad, or it could go really good too. I suppose. It's probably both. Mm -hmm. I think every invention is usually a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. When you're dealing with a mass amount of people, you're definitely going to have a lot of good and bad for sure. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, one thing that would be interesting is a, uh, I mean, this is too, this is probably idealistic and very hopeful, but if we can actually read each other's thoughts or understand what somebody else is feeling, that would change the whole paradigm of empathy mm, in a way. That's actually true, yeah. But that's too simplistic. But that like, can also it, be manipulative because if you know what yeah. somebody's thinking, you can easily use those thoughts against them. So it's both. I agree. I agree. It's both. It's both an understanding, but then the vulnerability that comes with that. Yeah. But it would be cool because then maybe people would understand each other more. That's but true. that's, again, too mm -hmm. simple. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to find a million counterexamples to mm -hmm. that. So. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> and it's so interestingly enough, so something that Alan always talks about, which is obviously the ego. I mean, it's something cool, but then on the one hand, we kind of also laugh because Alan loves talking about the ego. So why it's so important for us, I think, in this discussion is because, uh, oh, so I'm going to ask you to kind of take it away from here. Um, but the idea of like, let's say, you know, being anti-science is I think really sort of tied in with egoistic thinking, with the idea that I already know everything and sort of, I don't like, I don't need to learn anymore. And, you know, who are these sort of experts to tell me what to do or what to think? You know, I already kind of have my ideas and I have sort of certain foundations for them. Why am I supposed to examine them? So, Alan. Um, actually kind of said it there, but I'll, yeah, I'll tag it with, uh, mm. yeah. So you, when somebody is so egoically driven, they'll be married to a viewpoint, right? They're, they'll think that uh, my view is correct, your view is wrong, us versus them sort of mentality, or mm -hmm. uh, tribalistic, or, or if something new uh, enters their reality, something that's unfamiliar to them, they'll instantly not be able to uh, let that in. They, they want what is familiar, what is old. Um, and so that kind of thinking is very damaging to, to science, right? You, you want to be able to be open to new ideas, to challenge old existing paradigms. Uh, if, you know, if there's something worth being challenged, right. right? I mean, some things are just objectively true, of course, uh, but then maybe we don't know that, right? And it's worth pursuing. Yeah. And that's why awe is very important. Uh, w wouldn't you agree? Yeah, so there's a lot, there's a lot there. So let yeah. me, let me just start by the idea that uh, some people might, you know, be not open to science because they're egoistic or because they of tribalistic, uh, you know, dynamics. I think actually, uh, so, so basically the tribalist um, dynamics have more to do with being part of a group, right? Mm. Uh, and I think in terms of so U.S. denialism in the U.S. is very much, I think, the latter category. So when you do hear interviews of people who deny all sorts of things that seem to be obviously scientifically well established, it sounds like they're very egoistical, like, I don't care, you know, like. I draw my own conclusions. They say things like, I draw my own conclusions and, oh, if I get it, I get it. Why should I wear a face mask? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I did my own research. I did my own research. <laughs> like, why, why should I? You know, so that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, I think the dynamics there are also tribalistic. So let's suppose I was reading this interview with a farmer in Iowa who never wore a face mask, but you have to think in his community, people just don't wear face masks. So the moment he shows up with one, it's going to look like his friends, his family are going to wonder, hey, Alan, no, maybe not Alan, any other name, hey. <laughs> no, definitely not you Alan. Say, you can say. <laughs> hey, Bill, what are you doing there with that? Like, what are you doing there, right? So you immediately see there is, um, there is a dynamic there of, uh, you know, belonging to a group. So the moment it gets polarized, um, you know, you get those dynamics. Um, so I, I have a paper on this uh, out recently on uh, believing to belong, uh, the title of the paper. Uh, and, and that looks at that sort of uh, dynamic where people just, uh, they, they want to belong to a certain group. And in fact, this has been psychologically very well established. So I don't know if you've heard of the ASH experiments mm -hmm. that were conducted in the 1950s by this psychologist called Solomon Ash. So Solomon Ash noticed that um, during the, the, the Sabbath dinners or the, uh, during, during Passover, that he would sit there as a child and you would have all the family. And then there was one cup of wine standing there and there was nobody sitting. Uh, and that cup was there for some prophet. I don't know, Elijah or something. I don't know. And people would say, look, the wine it is the level of the wine is going down. And everybody else was saying, yeah, sure enough, the level of the wine is going down. And little Solomon Ash was thinking, yeah, it does seem like the level of the wine is going down, but is it really? Or is it, am I just thinking it? Because all my friends and family are thinking it. So he devised this really cool experiment where you have two lines and you have this line and then you have, so that's the target line. And then you have two test lines. And so you have to say, is it line A that is more like the target line or line B? 
And so it's very clearly A, like there's no, like if you have a normal visual cognition, you will say it's A. But now suppose that you sit there with 10 other people and they all insist it's line B, even though line B is longer. Mm-hmm. It turns out that, so people don't uniformly say, which is often what it becomes in psychology books, oh, it's line B, because everybody says it's line B. But there is a bigger chance that people will defer to people around them. And then on some trials, they'll again go with their own visual judgment. So it's kind of mixed. And Ash thought that it just shows that our beliefs are influenced by, in part, by what people around us believe. So basically with science denialism, I think a very similar dynamic is at work. You want to, like, you hear all these claims that are very hard to evaluate. So about face masks, for example, the science is not crystal clear yet on that. So I can understand why people who so doubt about it, you know, it's not completely founded in fiction. Now about climate science, for example, uh, it's very, very clear uh, that the science, there's this big consensus that there is indeed human-induced climate change. But as a layperson, you listen to this stuff, you're part of a community where, uh, you know, people are maybe climate change denialists because they're worried otherwise, you know, socialism will enter and, you know, all sorts of other things they don't want. And Mm -hmm. so you align your beliefs to the denialists because you want to be part of that community. And in fact, in the US, there has been this polarization. So since the 1970s, before that, basically, there was no political polarization of science. People just, you know, they had the Cold War as well. So they compete with the Russians. And so, you know, it was important to be scientifically literate. But then since the 1970s, you have this demonstrable effect of polarization. And it's driven with people just wanting to belong to their communities and wanting to align their beliefs with people in in their group, which is totally understandable. Yeah, like uh, flat earthers, for instance, right? <laughs> there, there are enough people who on the internet believe in it and support that idea and could with through uh, through sophistry are just able to make certain little points, little kernels of truth make right. sense mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to indoctrinate more people into their group. Right. And that's so scary. That's so scary. One of the great wonders of the internet, right? is that we, we, we can communicate with everyone in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But one consequence we probably didn't foresee, or not all of us could have foreseen, is that, yeah, you, you could get indoctrinated into, into these uh, groups that um, object, you know, if you could prove objectively, uh, they're wrong about certain beliefs. Mm-hmm. And even if they're wrong, it doesn't actually affect most people's membership to that group which which is fascinating right, right. Be- uh, yeah well yeah because of i mean we were at something we talked about i think a while ago so with cognitive dissonance i mean the idea is that people pretty much explain away the information in a way that justifies the initial belief so it's sort of like, and that maybe not justifies the initial belief, but at least maintains the initial belief. So it's like if the assumption is, well, here are all of the reasons why, you know, the earth is round, right? I mean, we've seen it through space, et cetera. What they will say is like, oh, well, all of that is fake, right? Nobody's ever actually been in space, just like nobody's ever been to the moon. So they'll sort of like twist and turn these arguments to fit the belief of whatever, let's say in this case, the flat earth. So, and it, what's also interesting, um, there was a really good article on this, and I wish I remembered even the platform that it was from, but I'm glad I at least remember this part of it to talk about. So because because of the way kind of black and white thinking is. So the author who was, I think, a psychologist and also at the same time, I think he was a biologist too. So he had training in both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the way he conceptualized it was he said, look, because of black and white thinking, these merchants of doubt are able to kind of creep in and make their case. So what people in the mainstream tend to think of it, um, tend to think of science is that like any doubt is significant doubt. So what he says is that these merchants of doubt, they come in and they say, well, the the science isn't established, right? Or this isn't conclusive or the evidence isn't concrete and all uh-huh. of a sudden yeah uh-huh. and all of a sudden in the public eye you're like oh 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 so there's disagreement oh my god that means that this is bullshit if there's disagreement that means there's it's probably 50 50 right you have these people here and then you have these people here and so this happened a lot during the times of like the cigarette industry trials where they came in and they said oh well the science isn't conclusive you know we have
have our own scientists who say they're otherwise. And so in the public eye, you know, the way they kind of saw it was that, oh, well, no, 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 it, there's no consensus. There are scientists who actually think cigarette smoking doesn't cause cancer. But then when you actually look at it and you're like, no, wait, no, no, no. So it's very few scientists and many of those scientists work for the tobacco industry. Right. Yeah. So there is a book recently out by Kaylin O'Connor and James Weatherall called The Misinformation Age, which basically talks about this in quite some detail about the tobacco industry and how indeed their main strategy was just to sow doubt uh, and was just that way to, to sort of delay uh, the acceptance of certain health recommendations that we eventually did see after much, much delay, such as no smoking in public places and so on. So that's a really, really fascinating book. Uh, I think in a sense, what is interesting there is that you're right that the public have this idea. So on the one hand, they sort of cling to any sort of glimmer of scientific advance but on the other hand you know the moment there's a moment of doubt all of a sudden they get all skeptical and say oh this is uh <laughs> this is unreliable like the, the merest doubt um and i noticed that often a strategy that is employed for example in the fight against creationism mm -hmm. uh people who uh try to educate the american public uh, that, you know, evolution really happened and is still happening and so on. Uh, they try to say, look, evolution is a fact, right? Because if you say evolution is a theory, then people say, oh, it's just a theory, right? So they, they try to establish, like, this is really 100% sure or 99% sure or whatever. Uh, and that way they try to get people to accept those claims. But I think what is also important is just to try to give people a better sense of how science works. Like, do we need 100%? Like, if you think in your everyday life, do you need 100% certainty for anything? Like, we often don't, like, suppose I want to go to the store because I want to buy certain this. Will it be there? Maybe not. But, you know, I do it anyway, right? Uh, I'm trying, I'm teaching online now. I'm trying all sorts of new pedagogical techniques. Will they work? Maybe not. Maybe it'll fall flat. But, you know, in our everyday lives, when we decide things, you don't need 100% certainty. You just need good enough. And, you know, if it goes better after a while, if you find something better, you take that. So you have to be willing to revise. And I think when people get better educated on the nature of science, they would realize that science is actually a bit like that. But then at a sort of societal level, like we now know, Take, for example, health recommendations about fat and sugar. They keep on changing and people get all skeptical and say, oh, look, now it's okay to have high fat. And before it was bad, before animal fat was taboo, now it's okay. They don't know anything. But that's the wrong conclusion to draw. You could just right, say, very black and white. Yeah, you could just say, look, uh, we, we work with the best evidence we have and that evidence guides successful action. Undeniably, it does. I mean, people live longer, have better solutions for various things. So they, these things do work, but they are always subject to revision. So I think using the strategy of, look, this is 100% true, might backfire because, you know, what if people successfully sow doubt? You don't have to have 100% certainty that climate change is happening. I think even if you didn't have that certainty, the measures you want to implement of clean energy are still going to be good. So it's still going to be good for, for successful and adaptive action. I think that's what people, you know, that should be science education should focus on this sort of thing. Like, what do we do with science? What do we want with science? Like, is it that... I think it's there to help us guide successful adaptive action and it's there to help us learn more about the world. It's not to sort of give us eternal 100% truths. Right. And then I would also add to that the 100% certainty is also the killer of awe. Because if you do know everything, right, and everything is sort of seemingly mundane and I guess lacking wonder, then what's the point of honestly even being alive? Like if you can sort of predict, like, let's say the argument against determinism usually is, um, let's say hard determinism, just to differentiate, mm -hmm. soft determinism, hard determinism. So the argument against hard determinism is essentially uh, like, why would anybody want to really believe in that? Because the idea is then, you, you know, everything is predictable and what kind of life is that if you wake up in the morning and you know everything that's going to happen? I mean, there's no awe in that, right? There's no sort of spontaneity and wonder. And so mm -hmm. what's so interesting is that for a lot of people who think that way, and this is just not scientific, my personal experience, a lot of the people who are sort of 
I'm stubborn and bullheaded and I have had moments of this myself, right? Um, a lot of them are also really depressed and a lot of them can't sort of take in the wonder of life because to them, everything is so ordinary mm -hmm. and so predictable. Delusionally so, I mean, definitely in my mind because they don't know everything, but because they're so sure of themselves, I definitely think that there's a, a high correlation between sort of narcissism and uh, let's say the academic sense or in the sense of like knowledge and intelligence where you already think you know everything and depression and feeling like it's all just sort of blah and who cares and nothing matters and I'm never going to learn anything new because like what I know kind of and I think same thing for Alan too mm -hmm. is that the thing that sort of propels us most of the time is literally the sense of learning and wonder and sort of figuring things out and trying new things right like with the podcast as an example there's a lot about doing this that we didn't know right do uh -huh. I mean, we would like to think of ourselves as experts, but we're like far from it. We just had like a technical <laughs> error before the show even started and it sucked. And so, but for us, I mean, I think the wonder is, okay, I mean, and again, fear, mm -hmm. right? So there's definitely fear that says, oh my God, what happens if we don't figure this out? But then the wonder is like, oh my God, this is actually so cool because like we get to immerse ourselves into this, learn about it, right? And then figure it out. So I guess, and then to kind of pivot it to you. Uh, I'll sure. just add one thing. Uh, the map, there's a saying, uh, the map is not the territory, right? So your projection of what you think is reality is, it's just that it's a projection. But of course, if you could look at things without that filter, without that projection, then you would see things as, as approximately as close to what the reality is as possible, right. which allows you to then take life head on, right? You, you don't, invent what you think is happening there sometimes these predictions are very uh, very useful and very reliable right. and i'm not going to say that they're not but they take away a lot of novelty in nuanced situations and um they don't allow you to experience someone as they are as well right if i thought i knew who either of you actually were and i had this like uh, mental image of you and I wouldn't be able to be open to something new about either of you, right? Um, yeah. yeah, so that's a perennial debate in philosophy between idealists and realists. So mm -hmm. idealists would say, indeed, so realists would say, as you say, like there is an actual reality and our representations correspond to those in varying degrees. But then you have idealists and they say, look, uh, well, there might be such a reality. This is basically Kant's idea. So there might be a reality, but you will never be able to see it without filter. There's mm -hmm. always going to be a filter. And famously, Kant even thought that, you know, space and time were sort of filters in which we saw things. Um, and that sounds, strikes you a bit as strange, but in a sense, it isn't, right? I mean, we feel time sequentially, but you could imagine a god or something standing outside of time and just seeing us as these four-dimensional objects, right? All in one, one way. But you don't experience it as such. You experience it as time because you're a time timely creature. Like, you get born, you get older, you die. And, you know, things are irreversible. So that's just the way you experience it. And so I'm in inclined to think, though I'm not a Kantian, I'm inclined to think that this kind of idealism might be, you know, close to how we have to conceive of how creatures, how animals deal with their environment. So in that respect, you wouldn't say there is like an ultimately right way to look at it. There is just a right way, given the conditions of that creature in that situation, there are probably better and worse ways to conceive of this situation. Like if you look at a flower, the flower will look at you, look appear to you a certain way. If a bee looks at the flower, it's a very different sort of thing. It's the same flower. Like they see ultraviolet streaks that sort of direct the bee to, you know, the, the honey. Um, mm. so, so same flower, different representations. Uh, and I think it's just going to be inevitable that we will always see the world through our specific eyes and not just through our evolved represent, you know, through our, you know, that your eyes are evolved and so on, uh, but also through your experiences and your background. And I think, uh, you know, uh, doing effective science communication, it's really important to you know, there's a problem, obviously, at the side of people who do not get the science communication. There's, I, I think often there is a bad faith 
thing going on there. Like they, they put impossibly high standards and so on. But at the same time, the communicators should do a better job of thinking what is the background of those people when they hear this information. Like just one example, I noticed that many science communicators are very anti-religious and you know, it's totally fine to be anti-religious, but the problem is you forefront that into your science communication. It's going to put a lot of people off because in their experience, this doesn't make sense. Like if you ask them to choose, they will not want to choose or they don't want to choose for your science communication. So that, that's, that's uh, yeah. And so, and then from the perspective of, actually, wait, before I ask that question, I want to read another passage from your AI article, if that's okay. Okay, um, so Helen wrote, writing in 2018, the psychologist Keltner, Sarah Goldleib, and Tanya Lombroso found that the tendency to feel awe, dispositional awe, is positively associated with scientific thinking and non-scientists, which is what we've just been talking about. So participants with higher dispositional awe have a comparatively better grasp on the nature of science, are more likely to reject young earth creationism, and um, or I guess even flat earth, and uh, also are more likely to reject unwarranted teleological explanations for not natural phenomena. So when awe is induced, people feel more positive towards science. And then, so my question would be, how do we sort of, I guess, shift them away from that sort of, um, that kind of herd mentality? And then also, how do we shift them away from the fear that comes from accepting uncertainty, accepting that, look, um, our sort of understanding and our uh, philosophy <laughs> of life is not necessarily complete and that's okay. And by doing that, right, how do we end up pretty much helping people cultivate awe on a daily basis? I think, so that, that's, that's a great question. I think in a sense, um, so, so first to start out, I think every one of our beliefs, not maybe every belief, not like is there milk in the fridge belief, not that sort of belief, but any sort of deep existential belief that you hold or belief about you know, ultimate reality or whatever is going to be influenced by, at least in part by, uh, a combination of things like so it's a very sort of it's a messy cloud of things it will be influenced by what you think the truth is this is something that people often forget uh, but people's beliefs are influenced by what they think is the truth uh, and there's actually several studies that have shown that like so in, in these studies people were asked like republicans were asked about certain Democrat claims and the other way around, uh, like, for example, is it the case that, you know, the whole pizza parlor thing and so on, uh, you know, in the Clinton campaign. Uh, and then it turned out that if you give people an incentive, like you can get so much money, if you answer the following question correctly, then that bias starts decreasing. So it turns out people are motivated by truth. Next to that, we're also motivated by belonging. And that now comes really at the forefront of, uh, you know, the sort of partisan things like you want to belong to your group, you want to have similar belie beliefs to your group. But next to that, I think beliefs are also uh, influenced by our experiences, like sort of personal life experiences. Um, and I think very often, uh, when when you hear scientists talk about why did you like Rachel Carson talks about this quite a bit in her book on wonder uh, and, and Jane Goodall talks about this. So Jane Goodall discusses this, this thing where she, she would spend hours in the garden by herself looking at insects. Mm -hmm. And so that's how she became, you know, the primatology expert. Like she got so awed by these little creatures and their, you know, their, their quest for survival, they're, they're doing things and she could watch them for hours. So in fact, you do not need to visit the Grand Canyon to cultivate a sense of awe. Like, so, and similarly, how to install this, how to instill that sense in other people. I think just if part of science education, was well, not just putting, prepping people for tests, but also giving them a sort of lifelong sense of how wondrous is nature. Uh, you know, there are several initiatives like for example, in the UK, lots of primary schools do forest school, where weekly they take the kids out into forest, and you know they they just they they, they do fun stuff like eat marshmallows and so on. But they also you know look at the trees and they can do that stuff, um, and and it it gives you a a lifelong sense. I think that you can find awesome things in everything, 
like even if if your environment is relatively impoverished you will always find something so i think part of education should just be uh doing that i mean also just looking at say uh, attenborough's uh, uh movies so they 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 typically so movies like you know his series planet earth where you have like yeah you know even if people never get to go to all those places uh, just watching it and knowing it's out there can be helpful in instilling this sense of all. So just watching such a Planet Earth video once in a while is maybe probably better than a sort of big lecture about why is evolution true, I think, ultimately in terms of science communication. Although I think the other thing, you know, it's important that people get the facts about evolution and climate change and so on. Uh, but just you know, wandering at nature and taking the time to do that and cultivating the sense to do that. Uh, I think also in a sense, a lot of our current values that we have in society, I'm sorry, I'm getting super preachy. No, it's, okay. it's almost, almost the end. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the values are about making money, right? And are about, you know, being productive. And it always struck me as kind of strange because you know, in a sense, we humans are able to sort of free ourselves of these kind of Darwinianist shackles that would bring other animals, you know, their daily lives is just like survival. Like, how do I get through the day? And actually, as human beings, we have the capacity of doing more than that. Like, we have structures, we have built buildings, we have roads, we have all sorts of things to make life easier for us and to free us so that we can focus on ultimate questions and so on. And then strangely, you have the forces of the economy that sort of pushes back into, never forget, you are a cog and a capitalist, you know, machine, but we are so much more than that. So in a sense, there is also the kind of broader societal push to making us these kinds of like, I have to worry about my productivity and I am not free of that. Like as an academic, I often worry like, am I being productive enough? Did I write enough stuff? Did I do enough stuff? Uh, whereas obviously, you know, this is not all that matters in our lives. And I still think that even with the pandemic right now, we still haven't made that shift. And I think we ought to make that shift that, you know, being in awe and doing things, reflecting on life is really something that everybody can do. It's not just for academics, it's for everybody. And, you know, as human beings, we owe it to ourselves to do this stuff. And I also think just to add on to that, and uh, as well, I mean, I guess maybe for us, this is more true than for you guys over there. Um, in New York, like we have a kind of a hyper competitive environment. So everyone wants to be an expert and appear as the expert. So I would also just add and say, like, for all of us who are experts in some fields, right, you know, whether, you know, psychology, science, etc. that the idea is that we sort of, you know, kind of show a humility or a level of humility and say, look, I don't know everything. And it's okay, right? I don't need to know everything. So mm -hmm. what um, often works, and let's let's for my setting in a clinical setting as a therapist is that sometimes when the client would ask me or they would, let's say, ask me a personal question about something about their psychology and they would say, well, why do I do that, right? I did this thing and it was like self-sabotaging. I want to know, right? Um, and a lot of times I don't have the answer for them. So I could say, we can mm -hmm. explore it. We can talk about it. I could even look into it and I could research the literature and get back to you. But, um, but I think that, and so when I was sort of starting out as a therapist, something like that was hard for me. I needed to give them an answer right away. I felt like, oh, because I'm the expert, I'm supposed to know. But a lot of times I unfortunately, we'd give them bad answers, right? And then I would have to actually come back the next week mm -hmm. and I would say, hey, I looked into it and this answer that I gave you last time actually wasn't a good answer. So to scratch what I said before. So uh -huh. I think it's okay for us to be able to say that whomever we are, right? Whether academics, right? Experts in other fields, for us to be able to say, look, I don't know the answer. That's okay. I don't need to feel badly about myself because of it. And I'm mm -hmm. just going to look it up and I'll get back to you whenever I find it, if I find it, because some questions are just unanswerable. Mm. Yeah, and it's uh, also going back to, uh, let's say, uh, movies or, or documentaries like Planet Earth. Um, I do love that there are gateways into awe, right? Whether it's through uh, movies or uh, music, uh, art, right? Poetry, and, and these things can open up a whole vast world to you. Uh, like you said, you don't necessarily have to go to the Grand Canyon to experience awe. Um, maybe you could watch... I don't know, The Matrix, or you could watch, uh, let's say, uh, Avatar, mm -hmm. right? And 
somebody having seen Avatar for the first time, it's like, oh, it's beautiful, green, lush, you know, kind of a beautiful mm -hmm. imagining of like these these beings and their relationship to the earth and there's something that kind of stirs within you as you watch it. So I actually have not seen Avatar. So <laughs> Which like, is surprising for him, by the way. Yeah, I, I probably I should see Avatar. But like movies like Inception, for example, uh -huh. like having to do with uh, dreams and interpretation mm -hmm. of, of what's going on in there. There's something in these movies that kind of resonates deeply with us mm -hmm. and starts to kind of open up that that awe and that and that wonder. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm I'm wondering is is that probably uh, a reliable gateway because I, I know vacation like uh, sorry not vacation uh, <laughs> education <laughs> <Freudian> slip. Uh, <laughs> education right uh in, in terms of uh, getting people to have more of a a scientific mindset right uh -huh. to, to be able to critically think understand that there's uh there's a sort of nuance uh, that they may not have all the answers i'm wondering if there are other ways to kind of get people to think in those ways right it, maybe it's not necessarily just through um someone's experience at school maybe it's through their experience with let's say like a movie, let's say, or, yeah. or music. Or fiction. Or fiction, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I don't know, like, do you, have you ever experienced like, uh, I mean, this is probably a dumb question. I'm sure you have. But uh, can you recall a time that you, you read something or you watched something and it made you think about things in a different way? Yeah. Oh, Helen, have you ever seen the movie Mr. Nobody? No. Oh, okay. When, when was that? Uh -huh. When was it? Yeah, right. So yeah. that is that is literally my favorite. I movie did see Avatar, though. So what makes that movie so cool is uh, so um, I mean, yeah, it definitely taught me things just about science in general, which was really cool. But on top of that, like it's a philosophical film, so it's with Jared Leto. Mm. Um, so in the film, it's actually based on the multiverse interpretation of quantum theory. And so what he does in the film is he actually plays like different roles. Well, he's actually the same person, but he plays like different lives of that. That same person and so as he's going like through time right what happens is he makes these different choices so it starts off with him mm -hmm. as he, he's like a kid right and so from my memory I, I saw this movie about a decade ago from my memory i think he's choosing between like a bagel and like a muffin right and his dad's like just make a decision and he's like i can't and he's like it's not a big deal just choose one and he's like i can't and he's like going back and forth back and forth and the premise of the film is essentially like when we make decisions right it's sort of like this butterfly effect right there's more mm -hmm. and more more sort of like, you know, kind of events come from them. So, go. By the way, highly recommend, whatever he said, even though there was like hints of spoilers in there, uh -huh. if you haven't seen it, it's definitely, if there was ever oh, a, yeah. like top movies to watch, yeah. it is so cerebral and mind bending yeah. and philosophical that it's, people would definitely yeah and psychological it. too so there, there's just so much to this movie there's like a lot to it yeah. and so in these different like lives right what he does is he pretty much makes different decisions so um or in the beginning at least it's like he makes these different decisions that spawn different lives so initially and it examines his psychology too so there was this really great scene where like okay so why this was important for me um so there was this really great scene where it's like the thing is, I mean, I still am to some extent. And I was essentially when I was younger, like I was kind of an asshole. So like I had a rough childhood that like difficulties in school, et cetera. So like I developed a sort of internal barrier that kind of kept people away from me. And so what made this movie so important for me was I remember there was this great scene where so the love of his life in the film, her name is Anna. And so mm -hmm. essentially like he's on the beach with her. And so so she comes up to him and she's like, and by the way, this is something I've done before. So she comes up to him and she says like, hey, do you want to like come swim with me and my friends? And he's like, no, no, no. I don't they're they're all like losers I don't want anything mm -hmm. to do with them and then she's like wow like you're like really an asshole and she's like whatever like screw you right <laughs> and then she kind of goes off and then he's like crap like why did I do that why would I say something so stupid and going back to like you know when my clients ask me questions of why do they do self-sabotaging things um so essentially like in the story so he has these two choices right on the one hand he could have said that and then on the other hand he could have said yeah sure I'd love to go for a swim with you guys mm -hmm. so on the one hand right when he said no and she kind of like left him he spent the rest of his life pretty much chasing her and trying to make up for it and because in his mind she was the love of his life but in the other story where he actually said yes and he didn't have his defenses up like they turned out to have a pretty solid life and there were other sort of re or other iterations of his life too outside of that Could I, okay Shoot so him. uh nietzsche this is old i can't believe i remember this okay. uh so there was a uh, something he had written and it was something called the 
uh, something it was like the nobleman and the man of resentment mm -hmm. right and the man of resentment is someone who lives as a no to everything mm -hmm. he lives in resistance mm -hmm. to everything his whole every decision it's not a proactive decision that he makes he just lets by just reacting and resisting mm -hmm. uh decisions be made for him so that's kind of like that reality where he didn't go with the girl he's very resistant to relationships and all that right. then there's the nobleman and he's somebody who represents being yes like he's the yes to everything he'll he's proactive he'll uh, make uh choices of his own volition and uh not necessarily be so resistant and reactive mm -hmm. Uh, so just tagging it with that, I don't know why. It just it is no, very like philosophical. That. So this kind, of, you know, movies have this effect on you, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, which McCall? It what movie? Oh, The Fountain. So uh, have you ever seen The Fountain? I'm sorry, I'm just certainly coming off as somebody who has not seen any movies. So this so Hugh Jackman is the main character in the movie, uh -huh. and his wife, uh, she is dying of cancer. And he is a doctor and he's actually studying how to find the cure to uh, save her and uh, deny her death, right? As though, as he's working on this and he's making some progress at the movie, but it's still like, oh, it's not working. It's not working. And she, the way she's dealing with her death is she's becoming more uh, spiritual in a sense. Like she's mm -hmm. actually starting to accept her own death uh, she just wants to spend time with him. Uh, he wants to go figure out how to save her from her death and, and all of that. And then there comes this point in the movie um, where he actually does find the cure, but it's kind of too late, right? Ah. Yes. Yeah. And it's very sad. And you and then you see like how he deals with her death and. Uh, and the reactions he has, it's so visceral. It, it almost, it just, anyone who um, resonates with that movie would resonate with them deeply if you've experienced like death in your life and all of that. Mm -hmm. And he then kind of starts to accept her death uh, without any spoilers. And it, it becomes this beautiful thing because then he actually kind of experiences a form of uh, enlightenment in the movie uh, mm -hmm. as they describe it in the movie. And and with the music and the score and all this and, and the moment when that's happening, it does something to you as you're watching it that uh, also makes you go through an experience and sort of, it's sort of cathartic too. And if you've ever experienced something in your life, like that was like that, mm -hmm. that's, that's a movie that helped me, for example. Well, what was your takeaway from it? Um, to, to accept uh, that death, happens um that it's a part of life it sounds so simple when you just say it like no that. most people can't accept that i think most people most of us i think struggle with it yeah <laughs> uh but it, it was it was great because at the time i was kind of struggling with that concept so the way they kind of took you through that journey in the movie mm -hmm. uh, um it made it made me be open to that idea right yeah. yeah. And for me, for Mr. Nobody, what helped me was to see that in the end, by being an asshole, like to that girl, that's what actually pushed her away. Because in his mind, he probably was thinking, I don't remember if this was a part of the movie, but I'm assuming for what I know about just humans and myself, is that he was thinking, oh, like, screw her, you know, I'm going to reject her before she rejects me. But in the end, it wasn't that like, she didn't like him, she actually would have liked him, she would have fallen in love with him, but he kind of screwed it up. So I think that we get so much from movies, man, like the piece so in, uh, it's mm -hmm. deep insight into the people we are, into the possibilities, possibilities for us for society as a, as a as a whole i mean it's really amazing stuff and so helen is that why you sort of became a philosophical fiction writer well so i think that uh, you mentioned all these movies i did see inception i didn't see mr nobody uh, and the matrix trilogy obviously that one thing amazing about that is that it introduces quite difficult philosophical concepts uh, in a way that is accessible, in a way that people uh, can can get, and that they indeed get a sort of sense, like you said about the sense of death. Uh, mm. In a sense, I think a lot of good philosophy is like that. Like a, good, a lot of good philosophy basically doesn't ask questions that are completely removed from what people worry about in their everyday lives. Like, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes when people, when I meet people and they don't know anything about me like I'm in an Uber or something um, 
and they they asked me what do you do and i say i'm a philosophy professor oh then you study the meaning of life you know and then i think oh yeah philosophy is not like that anymore but i think in a sense it is right i mean if philosophy doesn't study the meaning of life i mean and obviously that's lots of sub questions then what are we even doing right i mean there has to be some justification for philosophy and i think the justification is that uh, we study, you know, the sorts of questions that people, that keep people awake at night or, you know, that sometimes sort of come into your mind and it doesn't matter what your background is, you will have such questions. Uh, and philosophical fiction does uh, deal with those questions in a way that is very uh, attractive to people. And indeed, when people do take the trouble like Nietzsche, it's very interesting to note because Nietzsche is not so easy to analyze. Like if you're a philosopher, I know a few Nietzsche scholars and it's super difficult, like the stuff about the, the resentment of the, you know, uh, the slaves and the noblemen and so on. It's really difficult stuff, right? To like, what did he exactly mean? Like, or, or questions like, is he being misogynistic or racist? You know, like that sort of questions like, and he is actually, but you know, even so, even so Nietzsche being misogynistic and racist, is there still something interesting we can get from him? I think so. Um, so, so the problem is I think with philosophy that is not like philosophical fiction and the like, is that the, the cost of getting into it and, and appreciating these things, like there's a high payoff, but it's a high bar before you can start really appreciating those things. That's a bit of the, the difficulty I think that we're struggling with as philosophers. So that's why I think it's important to try to, you know, bring philosophy out for a broader audience and putting it in terms that, you know, non-specialists can understand. Uh, that's indeed also why I'm interested in philosophical fiction and why I co-edited that book on philosophical fiction, because I'm hoping uh, that will also bring philosophy to a broader audience, because I think it's just perennially important for us to be thinking about these questions. I mean, we have to live with them. So we might as well be careful in our way of thinking about them. Yeah, and so, and before we wrap up, I do want to know what's your take on popular philosophy? Because I know the criticisms have been, well, oh, it's, you know, too simple. Um, the masses or whatever wouldn't understand it anyway. What's the point? It's sort of like a watered down version of academia. So what's your view? What's your take on it? It's definitely not like, I think if academia doesn't like, obviously we teach, right? So we already, when we teach, you have to, a water dam. You have to, you know, <laughs> unpack and explain. So already in your teaching, you do it. Um, I think in a sense that uh, popular philosophy is really needed. I think that most of us that it should be, I mean, if it were up to me, this would be a standard part of tenure and promotion packages. Like, I mean, people would say, oh no, yet another jump, hoop to jump through. But I think if you're going to already have all sorts of criteria, I think this is a criterion to have. It would it would allow people because now people have zero incentive to do it because also it's really bizarre. But if you write a public philosophy piece, and I've done quite a few, not not as much as in like professional uh, journals like Eon, I have a few, uh, but also like just in things like uh, my personal blog and so on, people mm -hmm. will say. Oh, but you didn't you didn't adequately characterize that distinction and you didn't footnote this with this recent and I'm thinking it's public philosophy, right? There are different norms for public philosophy. You don't need to do that stuff. Obviously, if you completely misrepresent, say right. Kant as a utilitarian or something, I mean, obviously that's going to be a problem. But I think you you just need if public philosophy can bring some ideas of philosophy to a wider audience that is beneficial for that audience, then I think you have succeeded in your mission. Uh, and I think we should, you know, do more of it. It shouldn't be marginalized as it is right now. Yeah. And it's like, I think those people are honestly just nitpickers. I get the same thing because I write a blog and some of the frequent criticisms I get were, oh, well, you missed this or you didn't cover this topic. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. dude, first of all, I write about like deep psychological issues and I don't want to confuse people and write like a 3000 word blog on every single facet of a particular psychological construct. We don't need that. If I'm talking about one thing and I probably maybe even mentioned it in some other part of my blog, then go read it elsewhere. It's like, just because I didn't cover it doesn't mean I said it doesn't exist this i'm just focusing on this that doesn't mean i have to focus on all of the tentacles on every single part of the or every single aspect of the topic so i just think people are hypercritical i mean just sort of the nature of being a writer mm -hmm. yeah well all right so i mean 
Oh yeah. So uh, Helen, um, that philosophical fiction book that you said that you're co-writing, uh, what, what's that called? Oh, it's co-editing. Like they're stories by other people. And we just like Eric, Johan and I, we just write the introduction, which is also a story and the conclusion, mm. which is also a story. And all the others are just philosophical stories written by other people. Hmm. Yeah. And so, and I really love that you're doing that because like for us, we recently had, like, I didn't even, I lost count already. So we had a bunch of members of, um, so the book, how to live a good life, which was co-edited mm -hmm. by Dan Kaufman, Sky Cleary and Masvo Oh yeah, yeah. 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 So we nice. had a yeah. Yeah, very good book. Right. And yeah, so, nice. so what's so cool about it is it's literally meant for public consumption. So if I read it as like, you know, and I'm not a philosopher, obviously. So, and I, uh, whatever, I mean, I'm not a lay person, I guess either, but I think a lay person could understand any of the, any of the sort of chapters in the book. And yeah. I, feel, and I feel as though all of those chapters. So even if you don't subscribe to a particular philosophy in them, what it does is at the very least, it sort of helps you narrow down or at least it helps you narrow down what you don't like, or, but it also kind of helps you maybe pick apart and take parts of it that you do like. And so yeah. why I also like, that you're adding on to that because you're bringing about a different form of public philosophy. So while they, they're doing it in a more sort of, you know, traditional academic sense and sort of bringing it to the public in a way that's sort of more of a lecture, uh, what you're doing is you're bringing it to the public in more of a fiction or a story or a narrative. And I think mm -hmm. both ways are important ways for us to consume just any sort of um, form of academic information. Yeah. yeah. And um, Helen, if we wanted to follow you on social media, uh, where could we find you? So the main thing will be uh, at Helen Reflects, Helen Reflects, at, in, on Twitter. Uh, that's, that's the thing. So you will find regular updates there on uh, my blog and other stuff that I do. Okay, awesome. And Helen, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a wonderful show. Thank you very much the... for the invite. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And so... And if you ever uh, come back on again, I would love... I, I don't... I, didn't, I can't believe we didn't get into this. Uh, in terms of, so I saw an article uh, that you posted on Twitter. I was just looking at your Twitter earlier today, and I saw something related to Avatar, uh, but like The Last Airbender and philosophy, so something like that. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I, I was I was curious what, uh, you know, uh, maybe other uh, works of fiction, um, maybe that you'd uh, written about or looked at before in terms of like uh, anime or something like that. But that could be for another conversation. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon, Helen. Thank you. Bye. 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 -bye. Bye. All right, that was awesome. That was a really fun show. Really, really good. Well, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. <laughs> <laughs> and then also you can find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And we are under the STM podcast section up on, I think, the top left. Mm -hmm. And thanks again for watching and see you guys next time.